We're working our way through Genesis. We've only been in here since January. We're only into chapter 6. I was talking to somebody recently and said, wow, you're going in depth. I said, I don't know. I'm just really enjoying it. I hope you are. I, I believe you are. But we, we really come to, uh, thanks, we really come to a perplexing section of the Bible. This is the section of the Bible, chapter 6. It's such a bizarre section of the Bible. It has so many different interpretations by some of the greatest expositors of all time, some of my favorite uh, Bible teachers. Uh, we just have kind of differing or or opposing views. I think there's more disagreement per square inch of this text than anywhere in the scripture. You'll see why in a minute. If you've never studied the Bible, you're going to hear some real strange things, and I'm going to, I'm going to make sense to you from it. If you've studied this section before, and you're thinking, I'm going to say, say, I know what this is. I'm all here. Don't, don't turn me out, because I'm going to share the three main views of this section and the one I really prescribe to will be the last one. But I'm going to share these different ideas. But we need to read it. Before we do, let's ask God's blessing as we have the word before us tonight. Father, we count it a joy and a blessing to be able to open your word freely here in our country. And as, as we see our nation kind of going a, a different direction right now, and, and certainly involving freedoms, we just thank you. We have the freedom to assemble. We have the freedom to speak. We have the freedom, Lord, to open our Bible. I pray that you would, you would continue those freedoms and even broaden those freedoms uh, to, to in those areas that they've been taken away in the last eight years. I've I really seen some of those freedoms erode at our military and chaplains and schools and different places. And we just pray, Lord, that your word would be proclaimed from here and from all around the country and in schools and universities, that your word would be proclaimed its truth. And tonight, Lord, we just thank you for it, and we ask that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive it as we read it now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this section, The Sons of God and the Daughters of Men. Well, I'm going to define what all that is, but let's read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Moses is the writer. He says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to these men, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. I'm leaving a pause here on purpose. Verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of, who were of old men of renown. Now, what is this section all about? And again, I've waded through many, many commentators, and over the years, I, I would say that I probably read uh, 50 different commentators on this uh, great men that have studied the word and, and uh, taught as far back as um, Christendom, uh, different men uh, in the church throughout centuries. I've read their thoughts and opinions on this text. It's really difficult, but, but all the articles and all the things that, that flow through the church at different times, it's this section that's so talked about and so really uh, argued over this section of scripture. 
But again, because I take the Bible literally, and I believe, I believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I believe it. And so we're not going to not cover the Scripture just because there's different views on it. And I'm going to give you my view uh, about it as well. Many see this scripture as mythology. I'll define that uh, as we go through it. But Moses is the writer of these first five books of the Bible. They're known as the Pentateuch. He's the writer, and he wrote it here inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a reason that it's here. I'm going to try to help you understand that reason. I think you'll get it by the end of tonight, if I can get into it here. But there's many interpretations of this passage, and many people are all over the place. So I I just want you to keep this one thing in mind as we study. If you haven't already, if you've already read it and you already have an opinion, maybe your opinion is strong. Maybe you grew up in Calvary's and you've heard Chuck Missler a lot. And, And I've grown up in Calvary's and I've heard Chuck Missler and his view on this and other Calvary pastors as well. There's no consensus among Bible teachers on this. But some of them have really, really strong opinions. Um, This is the one thing I want you to remember. We we can be friends and have different views. We we have to do that when we read the Bible. We have to be friends when we have uh, these different views as we look at the Scriptures together. This passage will not change your salvation in any way, shape, or form. It has nothing to do with your salvation. So we're all brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. We, we love each other. We're a family of God. It won't alter the, that definition at all. It doesn't even go there. So at the end of the night, we're all saved. And we're all going, if, if you're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, and grace alone, then you're saved. And it, this section is not about that. If you have a different view than I do, then we just have to remember that we ha- it's just a view. And I'm going to share those couple of different views. Now, um, we've been studying this. And this section, as we come and approach it, we have to remember where we're, we've come from. We've come from this book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, the first uh, letter of the Greek alphabet, the book of beginnings. And we're, well, no, wait, 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 that's alpha, pardon me. The word Genesis means beginnings. My mind already, because of this text, my mind is already going all over the place. But, but this is the book of beginnings. And we see the first things, first things. The earth is created. The universe is created. All the things that in plants and ant, everything's been created. First, first, that's what we're looking at. And, and in this section that we've been covering the last few weeks, we're looking at these people. They're called the antediluvian people. The antediluvian people, these people that lived before the flood. These are pre-flood people here that God gives us historical account so that you and I have it. So we know what was prehistoric man like. And we're discovering that prehistoric man were very advanced. Not like the knuckle-dragging cavemen that we're used to hearing about. But the Bible says that these people were very technologically um, Meter, uh, 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 what are these words in my mind? Um, metallologically, you know, if you can say that. There's metal, there's, there's technology, there's cities, there's industry, there's animal husbandry, there, there, there's livestock, and there, there's all this stuff buying and selling in big cities. There's, these people were very advanced, their society, these antediluvian people. 
And as we've studied through this section, we've seen that God has this huge, powerful impact creating the world. And then we see the first man and the first sin, and humanity spirals out of control. It's, it's going so quickly out of control. Now, I've given you the time period from Adam to Noah. If you remember, it's about 650 or 60 years. Roughly 1,700 years have elapsed. And in 1,700 years, man has spiraled out of control. And we're going to hear God's opinion of man uh, tonight in this section. But we're looking at the, the progress of these first people in this prehistoric period, the antediluvian people. And... There are two societies that emerge when we study chapter 4 and chapter 5. And those two societies are ruled by these two people. Cain represents the ungodly people and ungodly society. And then we studied last week Seth. He's the other society. Seth is a representative of godly society and godly people. So you have two different peoples described here in context. I'm giving you context so that when we get to this, this portion of Scripture, you can, it makes sense to you. It helps in that way to understand. Cain and his wicked family represented a secular, godless society, but Seth and his family. If you look at the end of chapter 4, verse 26... Seth and his family called on the name of the Lord. Very different than Cain and his family. So Seth represents a sacred society. And these people, again, were very advanced in all the things that I just covered that they did. So Seth's family included two men that are, no, that are noted in Hebrews, Enoch and Noah. They're the two men that are from this antediluvian society that are mentioned in the book of Hebrews as great men of the faith, Enoch and, and Noah, both of them were preachers of righteousness. They, they stood for truth and they stood for righteousness and they preached out against the Cainites, all the family of Cain and the great, 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 great grandson, that reprobate Lemech and the, all that they represent. Noah and Enoch preached against it. They were men of righteousness and are mentioned in the book of Hebrews. So you have this society here. And really what we're seeing is this is a society before the flood that was beyond, listen, this is hard to say, but these people, all humanity were beyond redemption in God's sight. That's, an, that's a harsh judgment, isn't it? They were beyond redemption. They could not be redeemed. It was so evil and so corrupt. So what brought these people from Cain, Lemek, to the stage that they were beyond redemption? That's what this section is about. That's what these first four verses in chapter 6 are all about. How did they get so bad? How did they get so corrupt that God wanted to destroy the entire human population? Only eight people survived. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. That's it. Just the eight people. That, that's all that survived. So this final story dealing with the antediluvian people. That's what this is really all about. And how sin has affected all of society so bad. The people are so wicked they're beyond redemption. So the moral and spiritual condition of these people in this antediluvian world. It deteriorated so badly through, the, Cain, through the, the lineage of Cain and the lineage of Seth. You know, we can't say for sure that all the Sethites were godly people. The, 
maybe the majority were. Maybe there were some real ungodly Sethites as well. But, but the whole family of Cain was corrupt. And then we have Seth. So that's really the context here. Now, let me set the scene for this controversial part by giving you my first point here. Um, they were enjoying life. Everybody in this antediluvian society was enjoying life. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass. That's just a way uh, Moses, that's the way Holy Spirit is saying, well, by the way, um, this is what was happening at that time. came to pass which, when men began to multiply. And we've been reading about that, right? We've been reading about the long lifespan of these people. Uh, uh, Adam living 960 years and Methuselah 970 and, and all these people living long lives and producing lots of kids. They began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. So we're talking about the, the, the society that's very, they're procreating and they're doing it in mass and there's millions of people, actually billions on the planet when we come to the flood. And these people... According to Moses, as it came to pass, they were multiplying. They were, they were enjoying life. They were living life. They were living in the cities. They were enjoying art and music from these fathers of those things that we read about back in chapter 4. Where they're, they're experiencing life to its fullest technologically. They have metal, all kinds of metal, uh, holding up structures and using it for farming and, and all kinds of things. And they're, they're very advanced in their society. Moses says they're multiplying, that, that word rabbah in the Hebrew means to increase greatly or become much. That's what that word actually means. And so Moses saying, hey, they, they were really increasing. They became a lot. They were going quickly and, and fast into this multiplication and the society was growing by leaps and bounds. Jesus talked about the same time. Look at this verse behind me. In Matthew 24, he says, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So here's Jesus' commentary about these pre-Diluvian people that they were eating, drinking, marrying. Moses says, it came to pass that men began to multiply. They're, they're enjoying their life and they're enjoying the fruits of, of life. They're, they're investing themselves and in, in being prolific, really. They're healthy and prolific. And remember, at the beginning of the world, they came out of the garden. There's not as much disease. There's not as much, there's no uh, rain. There's no wind. It's just kind of this, this heat that comes uh, this cloud that's enveloping the planet and they're, they're all on the same continent and, and this, this moisture just is there and they, the water's on the, running from those rivers and the planet has all the, the plant life it needs and animal life. It, they're just prospering there in their advanced society. So that's, that's what you're saying. No, the normal routines of life, that's what he's saying. The, these people came to pass. They just began to multiply. Now Jesus and Matthew 24 is answering the disciples' question. He's about to leave the planet. In Matthew 24, he's about to be crucified. He's going to go. And they say, he tells the, his disciples, I'm coming again. I'm going to come back. And they say, well, Jesus, tell us, when are you going to come back? Or what are the signs about your return? What's, what's it going to be like? What are the signs of your return? In Matthew 24, verse 3 they ask the question, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And once you go put that scripture, Matthew 24, 38, here, here's the answer to the question. Go backwards one slide. 
For as in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. So Jesus is revealing what this world is going to be like. Right before Jesus comes back the second time, there's going to be this global industrialization. The world's built up. There's trade going around. There's, there's huge uh, centers of economic in, in these countries. You go to Jakarta, huge buildings. In Indonesia, in, the, in a third world country of these, you go to China, massively built up uh, headquarters for their, their uh, rendition of our stock market. There's one in Europe, there's one in America, there's one in China. All these buildings and these, these economic places and the people of the planet, they're crying peace and safety and it's all, this is the same way it was before the flood. The wicked heart of man. I, I love to think about all this because it helps me to look forward to Jesus coming because I can see the wicked heart of man. I can see where society's going, can't you? Can't you see the, the, the same things are happening that Jesus prophesies like in the days of Noah. They're eating and drinking. So the disciples wanted to know. Jesus told them what the signs were and he pointed back to these pre-Diluvian uh, or anti-Diluvian people, pre-flood people as being the, the, the sign. He, he gives the sign there. So Jesus verifies the truth of the great flood. He's saying that before the flood, you, you see that there? He's verifying the fact that there was a global flood. We're going to get into that in the next few weeks. But he also wants, I believe, all of us to know and understand what the days will be like. They were like these days, right before the flood, right before the judgment, right before all these people died, right before God wiped them all out because they were beyond being regenerated. I mean, think about how corrupt society has to be for God to make that determination. So these antediluvian people are enjoying life, but then something happens, and it further corrupts them. And it was in the days of Noah that this strange thing takes place. Now, I'm reading many different commentators, and I'm, I'm going to share some of that with you to make for, for, for you, help to, you to understand why I'm going here and what I'm saying. But Henry Morris calls it a tidal wave of violence and wickedness over the earth, that there was no longer any remedy but utter destruction. That's his definition of what was going on with his society before it was wiped out by the, the flood. So now we come to verse 2, and my next point here, the sons of God and daughters of men. So that's what we see here in verse 2. They took as them as their wives, and the children of these unions became giants in the earth, verse 4, men of renown. That, that's what you're seeing. When you read this real quickly, that's what you'll see here, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And again, it's easy to lose the application, um, and that's why there's debate, because people will take just that verse, pull it out, and have argument and debate over that one verse instead of reading it in context and seeing the Cainites and the Sethites and understanding where we are in the, in the narrative here in Genesis. And then what happens right before the flood, the, the final blow to, to the downward spiral of humanity is what we're seeing here in this section. So you have to be very, very careful. Even though there's different views, there still is application. And the application is that the human race before the flood was so corrupted with sin that God wiped them out. And that same applies before the second coming of Jesus because he's going to come back and he's going to wipe out the nations. He's going to wipe out a lot of people 
because they're waving their hands. They're, they're, they're Christ-rejecting. You can read the book of Revelation as we studied a few years ago here on Wednesday night. All the Christ-rejectors shaking their hands at God. So anything but that thought about these two societies and it will lead you into this bizarre view. Anything besides two societies, this final blow, and the, the corruption of mankind is going to lead you into this weird, real strange philosophical weirdness that I, I read it all the time. It's fun. To, I actually like to read it, but it's very strange. But I want to start here in verse 2 with who are the sons of God. It says in verse 2 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. So who are the sons of God. Now, there are three main views, and this is where I'm going to break and help you understand what the big controversy is, but there are three main views that circulate through church all the time. They're taught. You can read them on the internet. You can go to, if you go to finer or better Bible teachers, well-known evangelical Bible teachers, and look at their, or listen to their teaching, you'll hear these three views. And the first view is that the sons of God were earthly possessed rulers. They were kings, they were um, subpoint. My first subpoint there: earthly possessed rulers, and these. This view is that the kings and the rulers were corrupt, and so they just went out and they took for themselves these daughters, these women. They were corrupt rulers. It was there was so much immorality in society um, that they just took over to try to achieve this state of of. Uh, wellness or immortality or whatever it might be, but, but this earthly possessed rulers or kings, and I don't even like going there because it it's so weird and liberal that it, it just doesn't even make sense, but that's one view. Second view is that the sons of God refers to fallen angels or demons. They came to the earth in demonic superhuman bodies. That's the next view. And I'm going to spend some time on this one. This is the most um, accepted view, although I don't, I don't believe it entirely, and I'll tell you why, but demonic superhuman bodies, they took wives. And the offspring from these demonic superhuman beings and the women, the, the, the human women on the planet, the offspring became giants of verse 4. Now, many respected Bible scholars, well, let me name some for you, A.W. Pink, Donald Barnhouse, James Boyce, Charles Ryrie, John MacArthur, all of these men I respect highly, I read them all the time. These, these are my favorite, favorite um, uh, commentators and Bible teachers. The strongest argument for this view that these are demonic superhuman bodies, and all those men that I just mentioned, they teach this. The strongest argument is, is that term sons of God, because it's used elsewhere, and I'm going to show you what they teach, because I want you to understand this. Notice the verse behind me, Job 1.6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So they use this verse as a proof text that these Sons of God were demon, demons that came from wherever they came, from the spiritual realm, and they invaded time and space to have this 
cohabitation with the women on the planet and make these giants. That's the verse they use. I'm going to show you how it really doesn't quite say that later, but that's the verse they use. They also use Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, and Psalm 29, verse 1. You can write those down, check them out later, ask me later, I'll give you those verses. You can go back and look at those. Those are the verses they use for this argument that the sons of God were these demonic beings that left the spirit realm and cohabitated with women. In the New Testament, you find another mention about demons who left their normal residence, came to earth, and were judged by God. That's in Jude 1. Actually, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 6. I don't know why I put that on there. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. See that little phrase there? Angels that they're not living in their proper place or proper domain. But they left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So that verse is teaching that there's some angels that are so bad. They're so bad that God won't even allow them to come on the planet and create havoc. They've been chained. And from that verse, some teach that this Jude 6, this verse 6 of Jude, tells us that these angels left their domain, came into our world at this pre-Diluvian, anti-Diluvian time, and cohabitated with women, and thereby there was giants. And again, the argument for this second view is they left the spirit world. So the question is, here's my question. As I'm reading the Bible, and I take it literally, and I, I ask the question, how could a demon do this? How could a demon just leave his domain and then cohabitate with women? Those that believe this, they point to Genesis 19. And this is plausible. Listen to this. Genesis 19 is a story about Lot and Sodom. When, when Abraham was going to rescue his nephew Lot, who was in Sodom, was a terrible city just to the core, homo, rampant homosexuality, as the Bible describes. You can read about it in Genesis 19. Two angels came into the city, and the angels were who? They were men, and the men of the city, the homosexuals of the city, were beating on Lot's door, trying to get to the angels. Remember the story? And so they used that as a text. Well, here you go. See, angels came, and, and they were going to have this liaison with them. That's, but again, I have a problem with that. The problem, Jesus said this in Matthew 22. Now, I want you to try to follow me here as I share these things. But for in the resurrection, Jesus said, for neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. In other words, there's no procreation in heaven. There's no need for male and female. You'll be known as you're known here, but there's no need for procreation because we are the bride of who? And we're married to who forever? So there's no need for procreation. I don't believe that angels can procreate. That's why I don't believe the supposition here that's, that's brought by many, many good, and I, again, this is just my view. You can have this view if you want it, but I just don't believe that demons had that, and I use that as one of my proofs. Jesus said in heaven that angels don't marry because they don't procreate, and though the angels of God always resemble men in scripture, you, you don't see angels represented in any other way. They always are represented by men. That doesn't mean they can procreate. It doesn't mean that. So I do respect the view that demons take on these superhuman bodies. I just don't agree with it. 
I, I don't see that. The biggest problem is how does an angelic being cohabitate or have sex with human women? How do they do that? And you can surmise, you can, but there's no proof of that anywhere in the scripture. And what we do a lot of times is because we like it, we like the idea of, of, of giants in the land and hey, where do they come from and the Nephilim, we're going to talk about the Nephilim. We like that, don't we? So now we have to figure a way to, to keep the, what we like going in the scripture so we add things to it. And I just don't believe you can add that because I don't think that angelic beings have that ability, that capacity. It's one thing to say that demons indwell human men who marry human women. That's, that's one thing. But to say that demons took on some superhuman form and cohabitated with earthly women is entirely different. So I think what that does is kind of cheapen the Bible. I mean, how many of you have heard of Dungeons and Dragons and, and all the video games and there are all these demons with wings and they're hideous looking faces and I mean, it's just... Warcraft and all that junk. You know, I, I'm not really into that. I'm just throwing that out because I know that name. But people get into this really mythological thing, and oh yeah, that's that's, and they they compare that to the Bible. Don't ever do that. Don't don't interpret the Bible with some kind of weird things that you've looked at, or mythological Greek demigods like Zeus or Hercules. People do that. Well, wasn't Zeus a real person? No, he wasn't. He's made up. He's a mythological Hercules. You can do it, Herc. You can do it. <laughs> Thanks, Newton. I just remember that from my youth. You guys watch the cartoon when you're... Mytholo that's mythology. That has nothing to, do, nothing to do with this section. So my question is, do these half-angel, half-men offspring? Think about it. If you had this superhuman demon being that leaves the spirit realm and... and cohabitates with a woman, now you have a super half-angel, half-man offspring of some kind with some kind of, did they have a human soul? What was, was there eternality there? What were they like? I mean, there's no description in the Bible anywhere about that. No, nothing said about that. So for me to think that there was, or to build a whole, you know, theology around that, I think it's erroneous. That's just my view, again. And think about it, every time the Old Testament refers to the sons of God as angels, every time, and you find it in the Bible, they're always righteous. The sons of God, when you see sons of God and, and there's a relation to angels, it's a good angel. It's a righteous angel, not a demon. Again, I'm going to take you back to that verse I showed you earlier, Job verse 6. In that, section, in that verse there, Satan is distinguished different than the sons of God. Notice it. Read it this way with me here. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, comma, and Satan was hanging out around them. He came also. And to take that verse and teach that the sons of God were some superhuman, that's my problem with the interpretation by these very, very gifted, way more uh, intelligent men than myself. But I just don't see it there. I've looked at it. I've read the Hebrew parts. I've investigated that. And my point is that the sons of God are always good angels. So this strange term, sons of God, meaning demons, doesn't that sound odd to you? It just, it just doesn't make sense to me as I read the scripture. Why would God call demonic, anti-God creatures, these demons that fell from heaven, why would he call them sons of God? Why? It just doesn't make sense again in my mind, especially 
when you and I are called sons and daughters of the living God, look at this verse in the Old Testament, Hosea 1, verse 10. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So there's reference in the Bible to sons of God, but it's either a righteous angel or humanity, never a fallen angel or demonic superhuman body filled with all kinds of theological issues and problems and questions for me personally. The third view, and I believe this fits the context, it fits the context of the two different societies that we've looked at, Cainites, Sethites in chapters 4 and 5, and I'm going to just relate it in this way, the intermarriage of godly with ungodly. So here we have Cain and his ungodly family, Seth and his godly family. Not saying that everyone was godly. I'm not saying that, but most of them were following. They feared the Lord. You have these two different, and there's intermarriage now between these two. And that's the final step of this spiral out of control. I can't even regenerate these people anymore, God is going to declare. The sons of God, I believe, refers to the godly descendants of Seth. Verse 26 of chapter 4, they called on the name of the Lord. That's what sets them apart from the Canaanites. The daughters of men are ungodly women from the line of Cain. They reject God. They're ungodly. So that's what leads to the corruption of the human race and the judgment and the flood. This intermarriage of the godly line of Seth with the godless woman of Cain. That's what I believe this is teaching here. Now, there's no doubt that Satan was involved behind the scenes. Satan has already been in the world. Satan um, uh, showed himself as a serpent. So we had Satan from the spiritual realm showing himself in the physical world through this image of a serpent in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So as we go through these first chapters here of Genesis, again, remember, it's about first things that happen. We have the first demonic invasion in a mass stage. There are billions of people on the planet. There's two different families. Cain and all the evil of their family are an easy target for Satan just to infiltrate. Seth and his family that are godly are not an easy target for Satan to infiltrate. So, Satan infiltrates these people in, in, the, in the form of demonic possession of human men. That's what I believe these verses are teaching. And all the references here are to humans. Notice verse 2, sons and daughters. There's wives. There's marriage. Verse 3, uh, flesh and man. It's he, he's, the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for indeed he is flesh. And then verse 4, they have children and men, as repeated again. We're talking about humanity. We're not talking about some strange uh, uh, variant of a superhuman demon that left the spiritual world and came into the... Do you, do you get that? I'm hoping that you understand that. Now, if you've never studied the Bible before and you're here tonight, you're going, oh my goodness, what did I come to church for? All I can tell you is, is um, I'm doing the best I can to help you understand this. Again, this is the record that we're given. We're not given any more information. So we, but I believe we're given enough to understand what's going on here. 
any student of the Bible, any person, any one of you that reads the scriptures over and over again, you understand that humans inhabit the material world and that, that it's the, the spiritual angels, the spirit world where there's angels and they inhabit a spiritual world. We've been reading about that in Ephesians. But you see demonic invasion from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. They're th- they, they happen, they're here, they're moving, they're doing, they're possessing, they're, they're in all kinds of, of uh, habitations, but they work. They move from the spirit world into the, the human, human world, the material world. Again, the first, Satan to, uh, the first demon to appear was Satan in chapter 3 in the form of a serpent. And then demons or fallen angels are active, as I said, all the way until chapter 20 of Revelation when they're finally cast into the lake of fire forever. But between Genesis and Revelation, they're active. They're moving around. And remember how active they were in the Gospels. In Jesus' day, there are demons all over the place. It, it's almost like you can't move, go down a, a road without casting a demon out of somebody or something, right? You remember all through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these Uh, accounts of demonic activity happening in the life of Christ. When we get to Ephesians chapter 6, and it's so good, I'm so glad, the Lord just, we're studying the armor of God. The armor of God protects us from what? From the material world or from the spiritual world? From the spiritual world. And we have this God's protective armor that's given to us to protect us from the onslaught of daily battles and the fiery darts, they come from Satan in the de- demonic world. Let me show you again, reminding you of Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. This, here's a spiritual world described. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. So we're studying that right now. So I hope that you get it. I hope you understand there's two different worlds here. There's two different societies. Satan has infiltrated Cain to the max and all his, his family line. And they're now going to intermarry with Seth and ruin it. They're going to ruin it, the godly line of Seth. Not everybody, but, but just about everybody. That's what this, these verses, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, are all about. And ultimately, the Lord is going to destroy Satan. He's going to take care of him, but that happens in the future. It didn't happen at this time, but it happened in the future. The biggest problem with this view, and the reason there's three different views here that I've shared, I think there are actually some more, but these are the primary ones. Why did Moses use the term sons of God? If he would have said anything else, we wouldn't have this debate or there wouldn't be any thought about it. This is what one commentator says, one that I respect. I like to read this. He's a German commentator, Leupold. He says this, and I'll put his quote up. Moses used the term to underscore the high standards which the Sethites should have observed. Think about that. They were, they were God-fearing. Just like you and I, we make choices every day to live for the Lord and do the right thing and honor God. Now, we fail at times. We struggle. It's not easy living in this world. God honors and blesses those that obey him. Not financially like you hear at some churches. 
but spiritual blessings that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. All the spiritual riches we have in Christ, all that he gives us to guarantee our salvation in heaven. And so Leupold says this, Moses uses this term here to, to, to highlight or underscore the standard which the Sethites should have observed. They should have rejected intermarrying with the ungodly. In 1 Corinthians, we're told not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And, and I know some people in this room are, but you didn't know that. And there's some people, they, they come to Christ later in life and they go, oh, oops, I, 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 I'm married to an unbeliever. It's a struggle, it is, and it's a struggle for those that are. But that's something that God forbade in the New Testament, and we see that clearly, but I believe the Sethites should have, like Leupold says, observed that. So the sons of God, they should have known better. They shouldn't have gone there. They shouldn't have married, uh, intermarried like that. And they based their marriage on, and I, it's interesting, sexual attraction rather than godly character. Look at verse 2. They saw the daughters of men were beautiful. Isn't that interesting? And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So they're looking on the outward rather than character. And you know, you, all of us know that, especially if you've been married a few years, and you see somebody, and they fall in love, and they just, they love each other, and we normally, it's, it's the visual, right? It's the visual. You see, that, you see her across the room, like I saw my cute little Mary when I was going to church, and I saw her across the room, and then I, I sat closer to her, and then I found out her name was Esther, not Mary, and then we, we sat together. And, and, we, and, and, and we got, but it was I, it was visual. It's always visual, right? As a Christian, we need to understand we need to look beyond the physical into the heart of the person before we choose. And the Sethites didn't do that. They just saw, oh, they're beautiful. I'm going to marry that person. They were attracted that way rather than godly character. And that's what led to the corruption of the Sethites and this final judgment of the human race. The New Testament author Luke traces the line of Christ through Seth. And I want to show you this, Luke 3, 38. Notice the scripture I've got here. The sons of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam's descendants came through Seth. They're the sons of God who became corrupted by these marriages. That's, again, why I believe what I'm teaching you tonight. And, and I would add this. Through the many demonic influences through the, these men of Cain, the, the women, pardon me, the women of, of Cain, so no matter what your interpretation is, the application is the same. Sin will always lead you to compromise in your life. It'll always lead you to compromise. Don't compromise. Keep your standard up. I threw this verse in here real quick, James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire and enticed. In other words, you can't blame the devil. You're the one that was drawn away. You're the one that was tempted, yes, but you got to use the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of self, the sword of the spirit. you got to get that weapon. Get, get it on. Get the armor on. That's what we've been studying on Sunday morning to defeat that. Otherwise, you're going to go down because of your own desires when you're, you've chosen to do that. The godly line of Seth chose to intermarry with the ungodly Cainites. Now, here's the application real quick. For those of you that are young, for the young adults tonight, I, I really wanted to make some application here. Satan always tries to seduce everyone into known sin. He always does. It's his, he always does that. 
Your sex drive, that's good. Your emotions and your desire for romantic love are very, very powerful. They're very powerful. And if you put the word of God on the side and just live for yourself, you're going to go down the wrong path. You're going to do the same things that these Sethites did. You need to be very, very careful in what you do and how you interact with others. When you're sitting late at night, alone in a dark car with your girlfriend, guys, bad place to be. That's a bad place to be. You don't want to be there because you're going to be drawn away by your own lust and what? Enticed. You're going to, you're going to fall into that. So, so young people, be very, very careful. And again, you've got to get your armor on. Let me just show you this again real quick. Ephesians 6.14, Paul says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, this, having your, shot, your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So you've been given all that you need, Christian. So that's my application for the young people and, and really for all of us tonight. So these three viable interpretations that, we, that I mentioned earlier, earthly possessed rulers, demonic superhuman bodies, and the intermarriage of godly with the ungodly. So what about the giants? You're, you're, you're on the edge of your sea right now. We're going to have ice cream in a minute. You're, you're getting ready for ice cream. But what about the giants? Let's real quickly do this. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in through the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. Now here's, here's where the, those that hold this view that these demonic superhuman bodies um, uh, have this this cohabitation with women, and then they, they birth a race of giants here. You've, some of you have heard that before. That, that's where they get this. They use this little verse here for that specific purpose. But I want you to notice the text doesn't say that there, there's a product of the union here. It just says that they're on the earth. That's all it says. There were giants on the earth. See that there in verse 4? In those days. And, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. All it's saying is that there were. There were these giants on the earth. But I don't see a connection. Some do. I just don't see it there. The word giants is the word Nephilim. Nephilim is the word that is used. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament. It's found in Numbers 13, verse 33. Here it is behind me on the screen. There we saw the Nephilim, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. You know what that's talking about. They went into the promised land. They were sent there because Moses sent the spies in, and they were going to look and see if, if the, the land was good and flowing with milk and honey, and if they could take over. The, and so they sent the spies in there, and they saw Nephilim, or giants. Now, this word... Nephilim comes from a Hebrew root word that means to fall upon. The word Nephilim doesn't just mean giants like a six-foot-five pastor that you have. People call me a giant. I've been called a giant all my life. But that's not the word. The word comes from this word that means to fall upon. In other words, these people were known, think about this, 
to have these really large bodies and their warfare or their battle was to fall on people. Now, I know that sounds a little strange and it sounds a little bit today when I was thinking about this, it sounded like a cruel high school joke, you know, the fat girl or the fat guy or whatever, you, you know. And I, here's some jokes real quick just for my relief here. These are funny. Yo mama's so fat that she doesn't need the internet. She's already worldwide. That's, yo mama's so fat, she's on both sides of the family. I like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yo mama's so fat, I took a picture of her last year, and it's still printing. That, that one, that's serious. But here's, here's Nephilim. It means large. It means, it means these to fall upon. It means these large people that would fall upon. And the picture here is of these men of violence. They're, they're violent men. And they'll just fall on anybody. So that, that reference to fall upon doesn't necessarily say mean fat. It means that they would fall on anybody, that they would come and, and, and fight. They'd, they'd be violent to anybody. Remember Cain's great-great-great-great-grandson Lemek. Remember how Cain's line got to Lemek, and Lemek was so perverted that instead of taking one wife, which was the rule, he took two. That's what it says in the scriptures. We read that. That, that isolated him as being a corrupt individual, much more corrupt than his great-great-great-great-grandpappy Cain. And then Lemek threatened his wives. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Just go back to chapter 4, and you remember this. He threatened his wife with violence. He said, hear my voice, wives. Listen to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lemek seventyfold. Don't mess with me. I'm going to kill you. He's talking to his wives. Very threatening. Very violent. And so the, the, the Nephilim here in verse 4, going back to chapter 6, they may not have been giant people. They were just violent people. They fall on you for no reason. They, they, that's, that's what's being, in my view, that's what's being depicted. They were vicious men. They would just as soon kill you than look at you. That's how violent the culture was. That's what Jesus described in Matthew 24, by the way. I say that because these giants, they were corrupting the antediluvian Sethites, the, the, or, or pardon me, they, they were the corruption of the Cain and Seth coming together, this two sides. They were the corruption of, they were the, the, the notorious generation. The, they were known as violent people. They were these people. If you go down to verse 13, real quick, verse 13 of chapter 6 here, it says, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with, notice, violence through them. So I'm going to destroy them with the earth. So in other words, their unchecked sin was so bad. They were violent people. They were corrupt people. They were influenced by demons, I believe. They were possessed by demons. But their offspring wasn't like half demon, half human, and a giant. The giants were this, these people that were in the land, and that just describes the violent nature of the people that were in the land as well. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 120 years 
Only 120 years left. That's, that's the warning there. Noah's going to start building an ark. It's going to take him a long time to build. And so God is saying, you've only got 120 years left. That's how evil man was. But beyond the giants and demons and, and the sinful daughters of men, I want you to see in closing, God sees this society as totally corrupt. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. God looks beyond everything here. He looks into the human heart, and all he sees is total corruption. So much depravity that there's no redeeming value. It's, it's, this is such a harsh and stark um, description of the heart of man. One commentator, Alfred Erdsheim, says of verse 5, he said, this refers to the universal condition of the open rebellion against God brought about by the separation between Sethites and Cainites. Very interesting. They got together. If they stayed separate, maybe God would have spared the Sethites. But because they come together, they intermarry, ruins everything, and finally the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great. Now when I read that again, I, I think about the world that I live in. We live in a corrupt world, don't we? It's, it's bad. And I've been a Christian 45 years. And, and I believe Satan attacks all the time. And I, I get more victory now over sin than I used to. I used to fail all the time. Now I get more victory. And I explain that when we were going through the armor of God. The, the longer you've been a Christian, it doesn't mean that you'll never be assaulted by Satan. You're going to be assaulted more, but you'll win more victories as a Christian as you mature and grow in the Lord. You have to fight those daily battles against corrupt thoughts and bad habits, all that stuff. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, without the Holy Spirit, I have this quote, there it is, without the Holy Spirit and without grace, man can do nothing but sin, and so goes on endlessly from sin to sin. Isn't that the truth? That describes man. And I'm going to stop right there. I've got some more things in here, um, but I really want to save them. Uh, for next week. Well, I'll give you just a little bit, just a teeny teaser here. Look at verse 8. But, I love, I love these wonderful interludes when you get to the word. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is available for everyone. We see it here for the first time. Next week we'll start with this. We won't look at the, the skewed, weird commentators. We're going to look at God's grace next week. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. And I ask, Lord, that um, you would help us to understand uh, this very difficult passage. You'd help us to understand, Lord, that, uh, that the heart and, uh, of man was evil continually, that, that men are depraved, that we are depraved. And without you, Lord, we're on our way to hell, but because you sent your son who died for us on the cross, because you displayed your grace so magnificently, by faith we trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and we're saved. 
By grace we're saved. Through faith, that wonderful gift, Lord, that you give us, not of our works, lest any man should boast, but, but you gave that freely to us, just like you did for Noah. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, God, to turn to you day after day, turn away from our wickedness and turn to you. Help us to trust you, help us to love you. And tonight, Lord, as we unite our voices one more time and worship you and then hang out a little bit and fellowship, just thank you, God, for the church. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what, how you display your love and your grace through members of the body of Christ, through the teaching ministry of your word. We just thank you, Lord, for all those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.